I'm Tully Hescock. Welcome to Funded. In this podcast, we are going to take a deep dive into what public education equity looks like across Vermont. In this podcast, we will talk to experts about education policy and funding systems, but we will also talk to local principals, teachers, and parents. Before I started the interview process, I hoped to answer the following questions. Is there a distinction in the quality of education in Vermont based on where you live? How does place-based poverty affect a child's educational experience? And how has Act 46 impacted small schools? This first episode is going to be a little different from the rest of the episodes. This episode will focus on my own background and the context for this podcast. I am a senior at the University of Vermont, majoring in geography and minoring in reporting and documentary storytelling and global studies. I grew up attending Cornwall Elementary School. Cornwall is an affluent town a few miles away from Middlebury. Our school had a cart of 25 MacBooks, a full-time cook, and access to additional educational resources like speech therapy and advanced math groups. After school, I would travel eight miles south to the Whiting School, where my mom ran an after-school program that I was allowed to attend for free. Here, I felt like my low-income background fit in better with the kids at this small school. But I could definitely see the differences. Their school was small, with only a handful of desktops, packaged lunches, and only three teachers across K-6. through These inequities stuck with me as I joined my high school's school board as a student representative and eventually learned more about funding policies and education structure as I interned at the Vermont Superintendents Association in college. I have seen the ways Vermont has made strides in meeting the needs of students and families. But are these things enough? Are all Vermont students guaranteed an equitable education? This podcast is my senior thesis. As a geographer, I am curious to understand systems of equity and inequity across space. As a journalist, I have a passion for storytelling and for giving communities a voice. I hope this research resonates with listeners and will create not only a more educated audience, but also an audience that feels heard and validated through this spotlight. This podcast hopes to celebrate both success in education funding and weaknesses allowing for accountability and awareness. I want listeners to understand the structure and history of Vermont's public education funding system, to hear the lived experience of educators at rural schools, to understand the struggle of the classroom during COVID-19 remote learning, and to hear firsthand what equity looks like across space. In the first few episodes, we will understand key relationships between rurality and poverty and how school funding systems are designed at a national scale. Next, we will talk to experts about existing funding policies and the history of funding equity in Vermont. Then we will hear from three school communities in central Vermont. Over the course of this podcast, you will hear from 15 people, all of whom are policymakers, educators, and parents. In order to understand equity across space, I focused on three schools with differing levels of rurality. I measured rurality based on both population and distance from an urban center. 
I chose to look at elementary schools in the towns of Leicester, Virgins, and Middlebury, each representing a different level of rurality while located in the same region of the state. When I began this project, I'd hoped to look at schools across the state, ranging from the Northeast Kingdom to Southern Vermont. However, not all schools I reached out to were willing to be interviewed. As I began talking to schools, I felt it was even more interesting and valuable to understand schools within the same geographical region. I wanted to be able to compare apples to apples, per se. Normally, a thesis is a written research project. However, I felt it was important to create a product that was accessible not only to those interviewed and involved, but for everyone. Strickland's 2021 study shows how podcasting has grown in popularity over the last decade. According to their research, podcasting is an effective form of learning in higher education. The authors point to the podcast's accessibility, on-the-go style, and specificity as strengths. Funding equity is not just about numbers and budgets, but about the real-life outcomes for students, families, and educators. Narratives give context and voice to policies and can help humanize issues. Muindi, in 2019, writes that, quote, the richness and meaning of stories reveals the tremendous diversity of the human experience, unquote. This is exactly what I hope this podcast achieves. In the voices you will hear, I hope they reveal the human experience. I think this is done in a more effective way when we can hear the voice associated with the story. Bryant et al. in 2016 writes about the ways digital forms of storytelling can help educate and promote equity for silenced communities. Quote, by concentrating these stories in communities or neighborhoods, more can be learned about the shared experiences of community members. The goal of this type of participatory community engagement is to use the process of reflection and engagement to build partnerships and empower storytellers to use their significant experiences to promote and advocate for health equity in their communities." Unquote. Even though this study applies to health equity, I think the same concepts and frameworks can be applied to education equity. Although I'm not asking participants to promote or advocate for anything, I am hoping that by hearing their stories, others will feel more educated and empowered to make decisions in their own community. I also want to note that I have never made an in-depth podcast before. This has been a learning process in understanding the difference between written journalism and audio journalism. I have learned and struggled to produce quality audio and learn audio software. This project was done during a global pandemic, and many interviews were forced to be done over video chat or phone. I definitely made mistakes and learned a lot, and it's not perfect. But despite various levels of audio quality, each voice you hear is important to a greater story. In order to find participants and schools to use as case studies, I reached out to many schools and individuals. However, many chose not to be included or could not fit it into their schedule. Some of the voices you hear are close connections through my network of Vermont educators. Other schools and participants agreed to be interviewed after my initial email request. About half of the interviews were done in person, while half were done either over the phone or via Zoom. For two of the three schools, I was able to visit the school in person and meet with principals and staff. Interviews lasted between 20 to 40 minutes and were recorded and transcribed with either a Zoom digital recorder and otter.ai, 
which is a recording and transcribing application. Some interviews were only recorded with author.ai. After interviewing about 20 participants, there were dozens of pages of transcripts to understand. I used qualitative coding software to analyze some of the key interviews. I found common themes that people continuously brought up, such as Act 46, declining enrollment, the school as a source of community, and others. This process allowed me to understand what the interviews authentically showed, rather than picking out what I wanted the interviews to show. I was often surprised by the number of times different themes appeared. This process also allowed the writing process to be much more organized. Lastly, I want to thank all the participants who agreed not only to be interviewed, but to be part of an audio podcast, which can be a daunting request. In many ways, I have found community in school and educational systems throughout my life. I have also had the privilege to grow up in Vermont and be connected to multiple small towns. These connections, as you will see, played a huge role in the people I was able to interview. I think my pre-existing identity and positionality in many school and rural communities helped me gain trust with participants. Lastly, I want to thank Pablo Bose, Sherry Morse, and Ann Dixon, who have advised me along the way with both my research, writing, and editing processes. Thanks to my friend Claire Fagan for producing the original music used throughout this podcast. In the next episode, you will hear key literature and frameworks that help guide the rest of this podcast. Mm-hmm.